Hey gang, Tom Mullen here. Do you have a child who spends more time than you'd like in front of screens consuming low quality content? Well, you can turn that screen time into something fun and worthwhile. I'm talking about mini coders, an educational game based platform including companion apps made for kids with video tutorials, virtual assistant, and games where kids learn coding skills while they play in the Roblox metaverse, all under the safety and guidance of a virtual assistant and in-game tutors. MiniCoders is perfect for homeschooled, unschooled, or traditionally schooled children alike and helps them build 21st century skills and have a ball doing so. Right now, you can try out MiniCoders with no obligation by registering for a free trial at TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash MiniCoders. That's M-I-N-I-C-O-D-E-R-S. Again, just visit TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash MiniCoders and start your free trial today. Every revolution starts in the minds of the people. Arm yourself for the war of ideas. Take back your life. Take back your liberty. Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. Today, my guest is Norm Singleton. Norm has been a senior fellow of the Market Institute since January of this year. And prior to that, he served as both vice president and then president of Ron Paul's Campaign for Liberty from 2013 through 2022. Norm was Ron Paul's legislative director from 1997 to 2012 and served as policy director for Ron Paul's 2008 and 2012 presidential campaigns. He also served as a policy advisor for Joe Jorgensen's 2020 campaign for president. He earned a bachelor's degree in economics from Washington and Jefferson College and a law degree from the University of Pittsburgh. And most recently, he's written a number of articles for Real Clear Markets on a subject we've discussed often here on Tom Mullen Talks Freedom, namely big tech censorship and what to do about it. He's here to discuss those with me today. Norm, welcome to the show. Thank you, Tom. We've heard a lot about this from conservatives, that being big tech censorship, because they've been the target of most of the censorship. And we've heard it's a free speech issue, and maybe we ought to treat these companies like public utilities. How do you see the issue overall? Is there a problem with what they're doing? And first of all, is it a free speech issue? Well, it depends on how you define free speech. I mean, it's maybe kind of philosophically a free speech issue in that these businesses invite people onto their platforms to share information and communicate with their friends and make new friends and new contacts and then are told, well, you can't say you can't say that on YouTube or Twitter or Facebook. But politically and economically, it's not what we think of as a free speech issue in that these are private companies. I think, though, where the kind of shades of gray gets into this is the fact that these private companies, like a lot of private companies, are in many ways eager to receive favorable treatment from the government. Sometimes they were started through out-of-government-funded research, and they rely on favorable regulations. 
I mean, you see Facebook um, buying up a lot of ad space online, talking about how it's time to update regulations. And whenever a corporation says to Congress, please regulate me, what they're really saying is our lobbyists have a bill written already for you and for some campaign contribution. We'd, appre- we'll, we'd appreciate if you would introduce this and, and, and make this the new regulatory gold standard because it's going to be really good for us and it'd be really bad for the next Mark Zuckerberg or um, Bill Gates or whoever is out there uh, creating a new technological platform that can knock the big guys off their perch. So, like I said, though, it is it is a gray area because of that intersection of business and government. But I think that libertarians should not follow conservatives like Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz and Lindsey Graham and Chuck Grassley and others down the rabbit hole of saying that we're going to work with Amy Klobuchar in passing legislation such as one of her bills, S2992, which would essentially outlaw Amazon Prime by saying that a big platform like Amazon can't condition the use of that platform by smaller businesses on agreeing to other services that are offered or favor their own services. So basically, this would mean that a third-party vendor could say they were Amazon Prime, even if they didn't agree to use Amazon's warehousing and shipping services. And that means goodbye goodbye two-day delivery from any third-party vendor, which essentially means goodbye Prime for anything but Amazon products. But then Amazon might be, under this legislation, favoring their own products by saying that you can only get guaranteed two-day sh- two or one-day shipping through Amazon. And also, it would it would prevent Google from having Google Maps appear at the top of the search engine whenever someone goes Google Maps, even though Google Maps is is the most popular and widely used and most um, and most efficient, I believe, of all mapping services out there. So you can see that that has nothing to do with censorship, but because of the understandable anger at big tech conservatives are jumping on this bandwagon and even favoring some worse things and just abandoning principle. Yeah. And before we get to some of the things that you've written about, when you mention, okay, so to a certain extent, these companies are in bed with the government. Sometimes they're furthering the government's agenda. And I think they're doing it voluntarily because unfortunately they agree with the government on what should be done, especially about limiting speech. But are they any more in bed with the government than, say, other industries that we wouldn't apply that reasoning to? Or is there something different about the big tech companies that don't apply to oil companies or other manufacturers? Probably what's, probably what's subtly different is you don't, you don't think about the other companies, even, say, because they don't necessarily, they're not, like, on your phone. You're not, you're not carrying around oil companies. You know, you, you think about them when you pump the gas. And their actions are kind of like removed from from you. You don't, but most people don't think about how government policies affect the price of oil, or they don't necessarily when they when they have to pay a huge copay for drugs, they don't think about how the United States government policies, often done at the behest of pharma or other powerful health industry lobbyists, are skewing those those prices upward. And limiting the supply, whereas with big tech, the, the 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 connection is somewhat easier to see. And and of course, the most you know obvious example is the military-industrial complex. And there, it's mostly felt by people overseas because it's not it's not usually United States citizens 
who are being victimized by military equipment. Although that's that unfortunately has become more and more common, but but still, it, it's just that it's just that big tech gets the headlines, and they're kind of like you know the new the new 21st century entrepreneurial heroes slash, and then and then turned into the 21st century equivalent of the robber barons, you know, the popular villain. And it's also that. But one more point too, it's also that on the other side of the aisle, you have the left screaming for more content moderation, more censorship, that they're saying that you know, you don't you don't have I and mean, look at the freak out over Elon Musk, uh, which I know you've talked a lot about before a lot about. I mean that you you have and that I think kind of kind of feeds a backlash. To a certain extent with the Musk thing, you you couldn't write satire any better where people are comparing what these same people said just a few months ago about, oh, these are private companies. You know, the First Amendment doesn't apply, which you and I agree with. But now here they are saying, oh, my God, we can't have this guy owning this platform that's going to promote hate speech or or whatever. Just no sense of irony at all with, with these people. I want to ask you about an article that you wrote called Conservatives Will Rue the Day They Common Carrier Social Media. And this relates to one of the proposals to deal with this censorship issue. For anyone who doesn't know, if you could explain the common carrier concept and then why it's a bad idea. Common carriers is basically a special category of industry that is considered essential to serve the public, but is also the economic, you know, as the Austrians have demonstrated an economic fallacy of a natural monopoly. And so the government steps in to basically guarantee these companies a market, a profit, but also guarantee that their products are are affordable. Of course, all these are subjective terms up to how Government bureaucrats decide that they that, that they should be examples would be your city city buses, electric companies, you know anything that your municipality provides would pretty much I think be a common carrier. And there's been a provision going back to the Obama years to basically change the federal regulation of internet companies to put them under common carrier status, which would be a disaster. I mean, if you if you like if you've ever been on logged on to Facebook or Twitter or in MySpace for some reason and thought, you know, I wish that the internet performed with the speed and efficiency and quality that I get from the post office. And you want <laughs> the internet companies to be treated as common carriers. But some conservatives seem to want to apply this common carrier status to the internet, to the internet because they think this is how government will be able to guarantee free speech. Now, here's the problem with that, is this is a left, left-wing idea, and the people who would be in charge, at least in the, sh- at least in the short term, are people like uh, Linda Kahn, or no, I'm sorry, Lila Kahn, who's uh, the very left-wing, left-wing woke head of the Federal Trade Commission, and I forget her name, now, but I think Nina, she, she's head of the new, what is it called? Disinformation oh. Center in the Homeland Security Department. You know, these are the people who would be implementing these policies. And the question I think conservatives need to, need to really ask themselves, as, as often is the case when it comes to matters of economic policy, well, it comes to you know, most matters of pretty much any policy, conservatives need to talk to libertarians about, you know, well, you know, can't what what should government do? And you know, we can patiently explain to them that 
no, I'm sorry, Senator Hawley, but you don't want government to sit. You, it may seem like a simplistic and effective solution to pass, create another government program, but this is why that's actually going to backfire on you. And in this case, it's very simple to, to, to say is that the people that hate you and that have power to actually act on that hate aren't necessarily in Silicon Valley, they're in Washington, D.C. And the problem that a lot of conservatives point to is that there's there's too close a political, social, and ideological relationship between Silicon Valley, between the big tech managers and owners and employees and the folks in D.C. Why would we want to make that relationship closer? Why would we want to give government more power and, and create an even closer relationship between between the government and any regular and any industry? We need a separation of tech and state, not not and not not another shotgun marriage between uh, tech and state. And they believe that by making them common carriers, they can write all sorts of regulations that will lead to more equitable outcomes. I, I just can't even imagine how having listened to conservatives about the free market. Now, I know they never deliver on this, but they have made cogent arguments that this is never going to happen. And I'm not sure what the blind spot is with big tech. But for some reason, this has really touched a nerve. Well, it's interesting, too, because for the past two months, conservatives and progressives who have said that, and I, I should say, as I'm sure your listeners are aware, is that this this conservative embrace of antitrust against big tech is actually part of a, of a kind of disturbing ideological movement that's arisen in the age of, in the starting in the in the Trump presidency, or actually Trump campaign, and continuing in an oddly some ways getting strength in the post-Trump presidency or, or post-Trump presidency era, or at least know, what time between Trump presidencies, depending on what happens in 2024. But you have is that kind of the what they, what they call the, the post-liberal right or anti-market right, which is conservatives who say that because of woke capitalism and, and other factors, it no longer is beneficial for the right for traditionalist conservatives, for nationalist conservatives to have any to associate with libertarianism or allow any aspect of libertarian thought to influence their philosophy. Instead, we need to be basically a new fusionism, which is instead of libertarian means for conservative ends, is authoritarian means for conservative ends. And that that aside from being something that rejects what True conservatism from starting with Edmund Burke was is something that is probably not going to work out the way they intended it to. But anyway, the you know, the, the the last couple of months have shown that the this idea that these companies are too powerful to rely on market to check their has been blown to bits. Last week, if you remember, for at least I think a day and a half, the banner headline on drugs was about Amazon and Netflix losing money, losing stock, losing market share, Netflix laying off people. And part of it is Netflix has gone woke. Amazon has, I think, gone maybe gone woke in some respects, but not as bad as some of the other tech companies. With Amazon, it might be more that they're what's called was what I, I read last week. Someone referred to as a stay at the stay at home industries, which is Amazon, Twitter, Facebook, because you know they profited during the shutdown. Because what were most people doing? Sitting at home, ordering from Amazon, ordering Amazon Prime, and then getting on Facebook to either complain about how much it sucked to be stuck at home because of the 
stupid overreaction to COVID or talk about how they're never leaving their house again because they went out this last week and somebody who without a mask dared walk within walk within uh, two feet of them instead of staying the mandatory six, six feet apart. Well, now lockdowns are pretty much over. We're kind of gradually returning back to normal, which means that uh, people are going back to alternatives other than ordering from Amazon. Natural market cycle, natural market phenomenon. When the government distortion, which was the COVID lockdowns, is removed, the artificial boom in Amazon that was created by that, that also disappears. Facebook lost lost over a million users last year. And a large part of that was because young people are now see Facebook as the old people's site. And they're going to other sites like TikTok. Natural market phenomenon. A competitor emerges. I know that some people have issues with TikTok because of its connections to the Chinese government, but putting that aside, the fact is, you know, TikTok emerged through the market process in the United States, regardless of whether or not its ownership might not be traditional capitalist. Well, you're touching on another article you wrote because you've also talked about how they want to use antitrust. And one of the things you're getting at that I just don't understand is okay, so you're calling these companies monopolies or virtual monopolies. They have hundreds of competitors each. And I guess what really is ironic to me is I know that I've heard conservatives make the argument before this big tech problem emerged that what they called robber barons like John D. Rockefeller and Standard Oil had all these different competitors. Yes, he had a dominating share of the market because he did everything better. But they used to defend that and say, but look, he still had competitors. Now, all of a sudden, these competitors don't exist. So what do you think has happened there? Are these different people who are now registering for the Republican Party? Or is it just a complete ideological shift by the same people? I think part of it is anger at at how big tech is treating them. And I think it's, you know, for years, Republicans thought of themselves as the party of uh, business, and now they find, you know, the most successful entrepreneurial industries, which are the tech industries in, a, in America, are hostile to them and because of cultural values. And that's, that, that kind of reinforces and feeds into what I was just talking about before, this um, idea that, that we need to abandon the old, old school liberalism, economic liberalism or libertarianism and embrace regulations and learn to love regulations. It also is the fact that they're forgetting, uh, if they ever knew, that this is, markets are a process, not a, not a snapshot. And today's monopoly is going to be tomorrow's failure. And you know, history is full of companies that were considered dominant, untouchable. And the only way that, uh, and that's why we needed antitrust laws. Two of my favorite examples, because they're relevant to this topic, is one is IBM which was so powerful in the 70s that the government brought an antitrust suit against it. And I think 70s, mid, mid 70s, maybe I think it was the Ford era, Ford presidency, maybe under Carter, but under Carter or Ford. And it lasted for years and it was used in my civil procedure class to demonstrate a lot of the tricks that lawyers can play to drag things out and what a, a counter strategy is against that. Because at the time you had the US government IBM, both of which had the resources to spend whatever they wanted to on on lawyers. That's how big IBM was. It could match the government. It could match the Justice Department, which is a big thing. The case, by the time the case was dismissed, 
IBM was no longer that behemoth, that the behemoth, because a couple of guys named Steve Jobs and Bill Gates, literally working in their garages, I believe, or at least that's the that's the story, were knocking the were knocking IBM off of that pedestal. The other example that is very relevant is remember 2003-2004, MySpace was the dominant social media platform. I think MySpace actually was social media back then because I don't think there was a Twitter or or anything else. Right. I don't know of any other one. And I think didn't didn't Murdoch, the Fox Corporation, buy MySpace for like a billion dollars or something like it was one of the biggest in, in history? I don't remember, but that could be true. I believe it was News Corp which acquired MySpace or Fox which acquired MySpace for it. And it was a it was a huge it was a huge deal. And it was because MySpace was the most popular site in the world. And the idea, if you would have told anyone associated with MySpace that, hey, there's this, there's this Harvard sophomore who basically has a, has a joke created or is a troll. I don't know if that term was in use back then, but created a, this, this website in his dorm room that's becoming popular among colleges called the Facebook. And uh, you guys might want to take a look at this. It might be a little bit of concern to you could have been laughed out. They would have laughed you out of the room. This, 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 this clown Zuckerberg isn't going to threaten MySpace. MySpace is the most popular site in the world. Look what happened a couple of years after that. You know, Time Warner AOL. Remember that was going to dominate the entire news and entertainment industry because they they had the largest websites, they had the largest movie studios, they had the, all the they had you know Time Magazine and CNN. That that's now considered a textbook example of a disaster, and we see that now with Facebook and Amazon and 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 uh, Netflix and all these companies. You know the the market given time, and having the government stay out of it, the market will discipline powerful companies because someone will come along with a better idea. Let's take a short break for this important message. Friends, if you like to read books as much as I do, there comes a time when you realize you just won't ever find the time to read every book you're interested in. Well, I have great news. Blinkist offers the key ideas from nonfiction bestsellers in as little as 15 minutes. For most books and their extensive library, you can choose to read or listen to Blinks, which summarize the main ideas and allow you to absorb whole books in the time it takes to run your daily errands or commute to work. Not only does Blinkist allow you to glean the information you need from books you don't have time to read, it helps you to decide which ones to spend time reading and get more details. You can try out Blinkist for free and get 20% off your first year by going to TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. That's TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash Blinkist. Start your free trial and get 20% off today. And now let's get back to the show. You you were right, Mr. Spock, about everything you said. We humans just are logical. You crazy in the head. I remember in the 1990s when I was in the health insurance industry that there was an antitrust suit against Microsoft. And the contention there was that Microsoft was a monopoly and that a company called Netscape, which I believe became eventually Microsoft's Internet Explorer, but they were a web browser 
and they were suing because Microsoft was building its operating system so that you could only use their own web browser and not Netscape. I think that one got resolved where Microsoft agreed to buy Netscape, but same thing. It's like nobody considers Windows a, a monopoly now, but at the time, nobody could see past that. Oh my gosh, no one will ever be able to use a computer again, and they're going to take over the world. And the saddest part about that was until that lawsuit, Microsoft didn't have any lobbyists and sent no money to Washington. And then after that, the rest is history. Yeah. And of course, I remember, I think it was, I think it was actually Orrin Hatch at the time who might have said something like, it's good to see Microsoft has learned its lesson that you can't just sit in Silicon Valley and pretend that Washington, D.C. doesn't exist. Oh, Yeah. I, that's funny. I remember that. And I remember all those Republicans back then saying this internet thing, it's so new. We don't know how to regulate it. And I was yelling at the radio saying, yeah, that's why it's working. <laughs> you really don't know how to regulate anything. You just think you do because you've, because you've been using these products. You, you remember infamously the Alaskan Senator Don Young, who recently passed away on the floor of the house when I think it was they were debating net neutrality, said the Internet is a series of tubes. And, and he wasn't trying to be figurative or funny. Right. It, it is really disappointing, though, to see so many conservative Republicans, particularly in the Senate, falling for antitrust because they're angry at big tech. I'm going to post a link to your article. I got to mention the title, Attack of the Hipster Brandeisians on Corporate America. If you could just explain the name there and who are you referring to? Well, that actually comes from the former Obama Treasury Secretary, Larry Summers, who is a you know, far to the left, obviously, of either of us, but has considered a radical right winger by the standards of the Democratic Party of Bernie Sanders and AOC, <laughs> pointing, saying that basically hipster Brandeisian is, is, first of all, it comes from former Supreme Court Justice Louis Brandeis, who was a major figure in the progressive movement, who championed the idea of using antitrust and other regulatory laws to uh, kind of advance what we now call social justice goals, you know, worker rights and, and environmental rights and, and, and other left-wing progressive causes. The hipster part, I believe, is the fact that it's kind of become the new cool thing to say, like, oh, antitrust, break up the big corporations, that'll solve inflation, that'll solve the problem people have with big tech, that'll solve, that'll you know, stop the climate problems, you know, whatever, whatever we need. Antitrust is now kind of a go, has become one of the go-to solutions. Amy Klobuchar, who chairs the uh, Judiciary Committee, uh, Subcommittee on Antitrust, has even gone so far as to write books on the need to revive antitrust legislation. I've, I've heard from some people that she thinks that becoming known as the queen of antitrust is going to be her ticket to, at some point in the future, mount another more successful run for the Democratic nomination for president, because this is what's going to get the progressives to all fall in love with her. Yeah, I'm not going to bet a lot of money on Amy Klobuchar ever winning a national election, but she can have at it. It's it's kind of tragic when you say inflation. Now, okay, I don't think any of the problems that they're trying to solve are going to be solved with antitrust legislation. But the one thing that a monopoly would do if it was a natural monopoly was charge the lowest prices. That's how the first antitrust law actually came into existence was that Standard Oil's competitors said, we can't survive with them charging prices this low. So even that's gone out the window that you're not going to lower prices by breaking them up. 
Well, that's the most absurd thing. You know, Biden has jumped on this. Elizabeth Warren, of course, is also a big supporter of this idea. And I think Bernie Sanders is, too, that somehow the, 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 that corporate greed is causing is what's causing prices to rise, not government policies and certainly not, you know, the central bank. And there's several questions that are raised. One, one is, are you saying that corporations were not greedy when the president during the four years in which the president of the United States was literally the embodiment of everything that the left despises about the believes and despises about the business class. Under Trump, corporations somehow managed to keep their greed in check, but they let it go hog wild under Biden. Yeah, and they suddenly don't want business now. They don't want to compete. I'm your competitor, but I'm no longer going to try to steal your business with lower prices because, I don't know, greed, it just doesn't make any sense at all. Right. It doesn't. And clearly, this is just a, you know, saying that, you know, corporate greed is causing antitrust is the equivalent of saying that, you know, Hunter Biden's business, Hunter Biden's business dealings are all the products of Russian disinformation. It's just meant to just deflect and distract attention from the real issue. It's hard to believe even they believe it. What do you think about the Elon Musk factor now that he has bought Twitter? Is that going to dissipate some of this push, at least on the Republican side, for more regulation of big tech? Or no, you think they are going to still want to go after the other platforms? It'll be interesting to see what happens. I think you'll probably have that. I think you're also going to have not just Musk, but you'll have other, you know, you have all these other outlets coming up, MeWe and the Parlor, and that are explicitly saying that, hey, if you're a libertarian or a conservative and you think you're being shadow banned or silenced or your posts are being suppressed on the big tech guys, come over here. We want you, we love you, and we'll, we, want, we, we want your voice to be without our content moderator, moderators. And, and that's part of the market process too. And I think those sites are gonna grow. I think with, I think Elon Musk is already bringing people back to Twitter who, who left it. He's bringing people back who uh, banned it. You know, you saw Trump was, back on, was, was welcomed back on Twitter. Personally, I wish that instead of, instead of putting Donald Trump back on, they would have made putting Daniel McAdams back as their first priority because <laughs> having, having, listen, having listened to both Daniel McAdams and Donald Trump, I can tell you which one I feel that I, I, I feel at the end of that, that I feel that I actually learned something from. But, but I, I, I think that this is Elon Musk and all these this and everything else is going to just naturally taper conservative enthusiasm for using government to punish big tech because it's going to remind them that the market works over time. And yeah, the market is it's a difficult thing. It's, a, it's difficult to, it requires patience. It requires faith in that entrepreneurs will find better ways that entrepreneurs will meet untapped needs, which in this case, is a demand for a return to the days when the internet was a truly a vehicle for free speech. Remember, you know, we we like to 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 look back. A lot of us look back fondly, as you and I do, on 2007, 2008, the the Ron Paul revolution campaign. And remember, back then, Facebook, MySpace, I don't think Twitter so much because it wasn't big, but certainly YouTube. Those were how we. Those were what made the difference for Ron because that allowed me you know, yes, he, 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 he had an advantage. He didn't have running as a third party candidate in 88 in that he was able to stand up and, you know, tangle with Judy, Rudy Giuliani and John McCain and Mitt Romney and 
the rest of the, the rest of the neocons. But he, but it was also that videos of those exchanges, people were able to share them. People were able to say, you know, Google Ron Paul. No one in '88 could say Google Ron Paul because you know, what was Google? Nothing. It didn't exist in '88. And today, though, Ron would have very would have a very difficult time getting the same kind of traction because a candidate with his views, you know, might be trapped by the fact checkers. You know, his views on foreign policy, his views on the Federal Reserve, his views on healthcare, and any other number of issues, gun control, for example. So I think there's, you know, there's a demand to get back to that that type of of, of freewheeling, uh, free speech friendly internet, and that demand is we're starting to see it being met, and I expect it to increase as long as conservative politicians don't do some don't continue to do colossally stupid things by aligning with Amy Klobuchar and Lila Khan and other authoritarians of the left who want to control the internet, who want, because they want more, quote, content moderation, unquote. And the content that gets moderated, if Klobuchar and Khan have their way, is going to be conservative and libertarian and vaccine skeptical, anti-lockdown, challenging the narrative about the Ukraine conflict, you know, pointing out that, you know, pointing out facts about that conflict, like the fact that Russia has a right to feel aggrieved by the breaking of Bush, the first promise that NATO would not expand past the borders were reunited Germany if Gorbachev did not fight German reunification and withdrew troops from the old Warsaw Pact. That's a fact, but say that and you'll be labeled a Russian agent. Yeah, for sure. No good could come from saying the same words as Elizabeth Warren. If you like anything about the free market, private property, anything, that should be a clear sign that somewhere I've taken a wrong turn because here I am sounding like Bernie Sanders. So yeah, let's hope the Elon Musk thing short circuits that a little bit. Any last thoughts on an aspect of this we haven't covered? Well, there's two things I wanted to just bring up briefly. The one thought that just occurred to me is that also I think you see the reaction to the Ministry of Truth um, that Biden announced last week, which was that he he is from the right. And it does show there's a schizophrenia because they're saying on one hand, you know, government must control the Internet to guarantee the free speech. Then they're looking at Biden's Ministry of Truth or Ministry of Disinformation. And they're saying, oh, my God, government's going to try to control the Internet, which is going to mean less free right. That's why you sh- that's again goes back to my previous point. That's why you should be joining with the left to control government because Biden, because th- these are the people who will be doing it and they will be doing it against you. And it's going to be more of everything I don't like is Russian disinformation. And I'm going to transition to my last slide pointing out that the head of this disinformation is not just someone who actually was an advisor to the Ukraine government and worked for his, worked on Russian and Belarus policies for something called the National Democratic Institute. So she's hip deep in the regime change apparatus. But she, but she also echoed the claim that Hunter Biden's laptop story was Russian disinformation. And you know, I, I, I do have to say the one thing about the the Biden administration is that it has given us the most 
colorful and entertaining presidential relative since Billy Carter. I'm not sure if Hunter is greater than Billy Carter, but, but you know, and it is, it is popular among conservatives to compare Biden to, G- to Jimmy Carter, but that comparison is actually unfair to Carter because Carter was actually a great champion of deregulation. I think, I, I, you know, I've written some articles on that, and I think it's, it's very interesting because you know, his image is of a, a blundering left liberal who destroyed the economy. And in many ways, there's some truth to that, although Carter, like Ford and Nixon and presidents after that, was a victim of the real economic power, which is the Federal Reserve. But, but he did support a lot of bad economic policies, but he also supported deregulation of trucking, railroads, and airplanes. So everybody who got out their, their, their smartphones this morning and booked a cheap flight, you have Jimmy Carter to thank for that. Carter made, made airline travel affordable, and his allies in this weren't necessarily conservative Republicans. One of the champions of airline deregulations was Ted Kennedy. Ralph Nader supported Carter's deregulations, and the reason was not an exception to their progressive views. It was because they saw that the progressive goal of an economic policy that benefited consumers, workers, and small businesses as opposed to the big corporations was furthered by deregulation. Future Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer worked for Ted Kennedy, and he did scholarly work that Kennedy used showing that that, that the that the big airlines were quite comfortable having prices set by the government because it, it created a cartel and they got lots of profits from it and they had guaranteed markets, guaranteed monopoly. The way you guarantee a monopoly is not through a free market, but through, but through getting, your, getting your corporation regulated by the government so that the government can shut out competition either by imposing regulatory costs that, are, that a small business can't afford can't afford to get into that business and challenge you, or by explicitly limiting the number of providers in a given service area, which is something else you get with a common carrier type regulation, by the way. Uh, Bayer, um, there's a great quote from Bayer where he talks about how when they were looking at airline deregulation, they discovered that the consumers didn't like it, the unions didn't like it, nobody liked airline deregulation, deregulation or airline regulation except the big airlines. And it's just, it, it, it's a shame that at least when it comes to regulatory policy, Joe Biden, who may have forgotten a lot of things, but it's a shame that one of the things that he seems to have forgotten, along with all, the entire democratic policy, is the progressive pro-consumer, pro-free market, deregulatory agenda of Jimmy Carter. And it, it's even more disturbing that conservative Republicans like Josh Hawley are when it comes to regulatory policy, are well to the left of Jimmy Carter. Yeah, indeed. And you mentioned the Fed, and Carter also gets blamed for the inflation. And I always hear people say Reagan brought in Paul Volcker. No, Paul Volcker was nominated by Jimmy Carter. I know Reagan renominated him, but Volcker was already on his inflation-fighting path before Ronald Reagan was ever elected or inaugurated. So, that's another thing that started on Carter's watch that he gets no credit for. It did. And of course, on the flip side of that, things that we associate with Reagan that, that actually started the Carter administration, it was Carter's, not Reagan or National Security Advisor, Zygmunt Brzezinski, who came up with the brilliant idea of giving arms to fanatical Muslims to fight the Russians and 
in Afghanistan after orchestrating a uh, situation where, where Brzezinski knew the Russians would send troops into Afghanistan. And that worked out just swimmingly for America. Seems like I remember the name of one of those freedom fighters. What was it? Oh, Osama something? Yeah, it's ironic. But yeah, that was something that happened under, under Carter. And of course, to, you know, to, to the point that people say, well, that, that helped end the Cold War. And, you know, nobody knew at the time that, you know, it, we would have this, this blowback from this is that, again, you know, you should have listened to the Austrians because Cold War could have ended without us, without us creating a Muslim, a Islamic terrorist, uh, without us funding this radical Islamic uh, terrorists like Osama bin Laden and, and basically creating that, that, that enemy. And of course, we then continue to inflame by uh, sending troops into, placing troops into the holy uh, cities in Saudi Arabia and our support of Israeli policy towards the Palestinians and just a whole bunch of other of other things. You know, it's just that's just a mess. But that, again, is, is something else that actually started under under Carter. So, you know, Car- Carter was not the standard issue, less liberal that he's m- remembered for. Indeed. And while, while we're on the subject, I can't help mentioning this whole idea that Reagan's military spending helped bankrupt the Soviet Union. When you track the military spending of the Soviet Union, it doesn't look like it changed at all during Reagan's presidency from the track that it was on before he got elected. So there's just all kinds of nutty history from those years, misapplying the good stuff and not blaming the right people for the bad stuff. We could probably do another whole podcast on that. Well, that is, that is also something, by the way, that started in the 70s under Ford Carter and then became solidified under Reagan was the idea that, you know, replacement of the of the old kind of Brandeisian big is bad standard of antitrust with the idea coming from the Chicago School of Law and Economics that antitrust should be judged by a question of does consolidation in the marketplace harm or hurt the consumer? Which basically, which is a, a way of uh, shorthand for saying the general welfare. You know, does it? And uh, of course, you know that that has problems with it if you're an Austrian, as I am. But it still it gets away from the idea that bigness of itself is bad and does does put put some limits on regulations. And part of the right turn towards antitrust is even Daniel Oliver, who was Reagan's chairman of the FTC and played a major role in making the consumer welfare standard the standard of antitrust enforcement in America, is now saying because big of big tech, we need to, to step away from the consumer welfare standard. Yeah, I remember reading that, and we'll certainly link to that article. Listen, we're out of time. Maybe we could do another podcast just on antitrust if you could spare the time to come back one of these days where else can we link as far as people finding your work besides your real clear markets blog the other place that that runs a lot of my work is the libertarian institute which i'm sure most of your listeners are visiting on a daily basis not just to see when i pop up there but they've run a lot of really good stuff and have some of the best people in the liberty movement writing for them starting with the great scott horton Certainly. And we've had Scott here and actually a couple other people from the Libertarian Institute. We'll link to that and to your articles on this. And again, Norm, hopefully we can talk again soon. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, friends, that's going to do it for today. If you haven't already, don't forget to download a free copy of my new ebook, It's the Fed Stupid, at itsthefedstupid.com. And if you like the music you've heard on Tom Mullen Talks Freedom, you can hear more at TomMullenSings.com. Thanks for listening. 
The war of ideas has only just begun. Arm yourself with the knowledge you need by heading to TomMullenTalksFreedom.com and subscribing to our email list. And remember, every revolution starts in the minds of the people.